Thank you for joining us. Tim loves being included in that, young adults. Uh, I apologize, I cannot get the monitor to work this morning, but uh, uh, so you'll just have to bear with me. But at least I got your handouts. So, uh, yeah, Michelle didn't have to remind me. So, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn over to Romans 8. We'll be there in just a moment. We have been looking at the life of a Christian and progressive sanctification, growing into Christ-likeness, maturing. And we've looked at it from different angles. We spent a couple of weeks in Galatians 5 about walking in the Spirit to demonstrate fruit of the Spirit's working in our lives. We've talked about who lives your Christian life, you or God? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, there's, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty as to how it all works together. Um, ever since Paul and James appeared by some people to be in contradiction with each other. Christians have struggled to define what is the proper tension between faith and works. For in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul launches his argument that uh, it's by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul stresses that aspect of salvation. And the flip side to the exact same coin, not in opposition, would be James in chapter 2 of his epistle, that uh, a faith that does not stimulate or produce works of righteousness demonstrates that it's non-saving. So, when we look at the issue of sanctification, we must recognize that it is not passive, it is active. And maybe if a, if a picture's worth a, a thousand words, I gave you a handout, uh, the second page of your handout in picture form shows the way a lot of people view the Christian walk. Some are correct, some are incorrect. I would uh, point your eyes to the third diagram, uh, a, a reformed soteriology uh, that uh, would say that, it, it, as the Puritans said, that uh, sanctification is, is holy sweat. It is applying yourself through diligence to our sanctification, that there is a degree of law and requirement in the Christian life. To shove it off as, well, we're under grace, there is no obligation. Uh, you know, when you suggest that there are obligations, you know, we need to recognize that grace obligates. In the Christian life, there is an ought, and yet it's a joy. It's a joyous ought to do this because you know how we've said before that not all change is sanctification. You can do behavior modification. You can put off. You, you can go to a 12-step program to put off 
uh, drinking. That's not sanctification. But the Christian puts off sinful behavior and puts on righteous ones uh, because they're motivated by the gospel. They're motivated by Christ, honor, to show love, to demonstrate love to Him. So when you suggest that there is still a degree of law or obligation in the Christian experience, people want to use the L word. I think that too many people use the L word. You know the L word. They say legalism. And I think that we ought to use that word infrequently. That, as a matter of fact, when we looked in, uh, in uh, Galatians 5 in our, in our study about being led by the Spirit, there's a lot of activity that the Apostle Paul brings our attention to there, that sanctification is not passive. There is activity. There is a degree of application and working it out, as he would say in Philippians 2. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, sanctification, quote, is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness, unquote. So it's a, a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits. It's also more than counteraction in which sin is just restrained or repressed. Uh, that'll, that, that statement is uh, to direct your attention to some people's paradigms or views of sanctification. Uh, sanctification is a real transformation, not just the appearance of one, not just putting on a show, not just putting on our church-sanctified face. Uh, the basic meaning of sanctified that we looked at last week was what? To, to be holy, to be set apart unto God. This moral renovation in which we're increasingly changed from what we once were flows from the agency of the Spirit as we studied. God calls His children to holiness and graciously gives what He commands. His command is His enablement for the believer. This is something that is impossible for the non-Christian. Regeneration is a, a very, you know, is an aspect different than what we're talking about in our sanctification. We, we tried to point out last week that our positional sanctification is our grounds for practicing sanctification, is it not? That to be called to new life in Christ Jesus is the power source, the enablement to do what God has commanded us to do. Uh, so God's method of sanctification is, is neither activism, self-reliant activity where you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and force yourself to change, nor is it ap apathy where we let go and let God. Believers during this in-between stage, this present tense of salvation where we're being freed from sinful habits in life, is we experience tension, right? We, we've said that uh, we find ourselves with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, what I want to do, that I don't do, what I don't want to do, that I end up practicing. So we find that contrary urging within as the Spirit sustains our regenerate desires and purposes 
yet we have those fallen instincts, our unredeemed humanness that the Bible calls our flesh that obstructs our path and drags us back. It's, it's uh, you know, the old man who's dead trying to raise his ugly head saying, I'm alive. No, you're dead. Reckon yourself to be dead. But through the Spirit's help, we put to death bad habits. In Romans 8, where I'd asked you to turn several minutes ago, you wondered, uh, are you ever going to get there, Parker? Yes. Uh, Romans 8, read with me as we look at another, from another angle. And, and I'm hoping that uh, this morning we're putting a handle to take with you, a handle of application of, of a biblical format, biblical principles on how we can kill sin in our lives, how we can manifest a, a more sanctified walk. In Romans 8, notice with me verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, brethren's important here. Context is king, remember? This is something that is only possible for the believer. Otherwise, it's uh, behavior modification. It's not sanctification. Uh, so, beloved, Paul says, we're under obligation. There's that word I already used. There is an ought to the Christian life. There is requirement. There is the law of Christ. There is, there is constraint. There is expectation of what God commands us to do and to be. So he writes to the beloved, we're under obligation. And notice where our allegiance now is. Not to the flesh. We've made it our aim. Paul would write to the Corinthians and he says, we've made it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. We've got a new purpose in life. To be redeemed is to no longer be Lord of our lives and have our own plans but submitted to Christ. And so he says, brethren, we're under obligation. Our obligation is not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In the words that we already looked at in Galatians 5, that we don't walk in the flesh, but we are led by the Spirit. And let that image be in your mind as we read verse 13. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body you will live. I thought the old man's dead. He is dead, but he likes to think he's alive. So Paul draws a line of distinction clearly between Christians and non-Christians. Here in this passage, he's not warning about uh, losing your salvation. He'd already made that point clear in verses 4 through 9, that true believers live according to uh, can't live according to the sin principle. And he's reiterating what he says again and again throughout his New Testament epistles, that those whose lives and hearts are altogether fleshly are not true Christians. They're spiritually dead, according to verse 6. And unless they repent, they're headed for eternal death. So Christians have a different obligation, a new ought to do in life, not to the flesh, but this new principle of righteousness embodied in the Holy Spirit. Nothing's more natural for those with new life in Christ than to be led by the Spirit of God, to kill their sin. That's an expression of the new nature. That's a natural desire that comes through the new birth. 
Remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, that we are to take radical action with our sin. That's the activity of sanctification, take radical action about sin. When he says, if your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? Heck it off. He's not talking about mutilation of the body. If your eye causes you to sin, well, pluck it out. Jesus is not teaching uh, uh, masochists to cause pain and thus feel better about their sin. But he is talking about mortification of deeds of the body. Killing sin. Puritan John Owen says, Mortification means, quote, the old man with his faculties, his wisdom, craft, subtlety, strength, must have its power, life, vigor, and strength to produce its effects taken away by the Spirit, unquote. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was teaching through this passage in, in Romans 8, said, it is here for the first time in this chapter that we call, come to the realm of practical application. So, so Paul's showing us doctrine is for doing. And he says, all we have had up to this point has been a general description of the Christian, his character, his position. But now the apostle has really come explicitly to the doctrine of sanctification. Here we're told exactly how in practice the Christian becomes sanctified. Or to state it differently, here we are told in detail and in practice how the Christian is to wage the battle against sin. So we're instructed by Paul. And Paul does not give us some quick fix to get rid of this tension of remaining sin in our lives. He doesn't give us uh, any kind of doctrine of immediate perfection or let go, let God or a turning point decision where you got saved years ago but you really got convicted by the Spirit of God and you're going to rededicate your life and get serious now. That'll solve the problem once for all. It's not even something that is attained through uh, mystical meditation. He speaks of an ongoing struggle with sin where you and I who are in Christ persistently and perpetually put to death the deeds of the body. Sanctification is about replacing sinful habits with righteous ones. And yet this growth in grace can't be looked at as a fleshly or mechanical formula. Not religious activities. Not rituals. You can't kill sin through legalism. You can't kill sin through monasticism. As I've said to you before, uh, what's the one problem when they lock themselves in their cloisters? Uh, you take your own sinful heart in there with you. You can't kill sin through monasticism. You can't kill sin through pietism. You can't kill sin through asceticism. You can't kill sin through Phariseeism or celibacy. Oh, the, and the list goes on and on and on. Only those who have fled to Christ by His grace can kill sin. Those who are in Christ, in the Spirit, by the Word, can kill sin. So let's look very practically uh, in the, the, uh, the second slide you've got before you since our monitor's not working. Number one, abstain from fleshly lusts. First Peter chapter 2 and uh, verse number 11. First Peter 2.11 
we're instructed by another beloved apostle, Peter, who speaks to the beloved. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's a command of Scripture. That is God's requirement. That's His expectation. That is the obligation of the gospel. That is the ought of the Christian life, that you are to abstain from fleshly lusts. Stop. Very simple. No convoluted formula. Just a simple word. Stop. Stay away from it. Don't do it. In Pauline terminology, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee immorality. Stop it. The, the Bible does not treat our sin as an addiction. It says, quit doing it. Don't do it. I, uh, uh, you, you ought to, when, when you have time to peruse uh, the internet, you ought to do a Google search for uh, Bob Newhart. Stop it. Bob Newhart's version of uh, counseling is this. He's got uh, uh, somebody sitting across the desk for him, and they're, they're spilling their soul to him. And uh, what's his uh, counsel to them? Stop it! Don't do it! So, theology according to Bob Newhart, <laughs> or more inspired advice and command and expectation by Peter and Paul, stop it. You know, the world wants to treat sin like, in, in a therapeutic age, as, as an addiction. Do you want to put to death the lusts in your heart? Stop entertaining them. Stop playing with them. Stop giving it place and attention and time. Peter does not prescribe a program of therapy. If a Christian, which is why the gospel is the key ingredient to sanctification... It's not just about getting saved and then living like the devil the rest of our lives. It's living a sanctified walk. If a Christian, you've got no business indulging in those thoughts that you perpetually do. No right. Put them away at once. You at once need to do this. It's something that I can't do for you. The person sitting in the pew next to you can't do for you. It's something your spouse can't do for you. You need to do this. Can't do that, be done for you. Let me put it another way. You can't wait for some holy zap as some of the mo those models of sanctification uh, teach you. Uh, so erase that uh, from your thinking. You, you, some holy, holy zap from on high to erase that sin from you. Stop waiting for divine intervention when God commanded you to do it. Romans 6 says, you are free from sin, now stop doing it. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you, James says in James 4, 7. So the first handle of application we put to progressive sanctification and killing sin in our lives, God's requirement, abstain. Stop doing it. Number two, make no provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14. Deprive those evil desires of their strength and their power. You know, I've, I've noticed over the last couple of years, I've gotten uh, 
a lot more klutzy. Thus, it's not good for me to do contracting work, stay off the ladders as much as I spend time on ladders. When you're walking along the rafters to do electrical work, be very attentive to where you're putting your foot, lest it go through the ceiling. If you don't want to fall, you're going to be very attentive to where the potholes are, where the debris is that you're going to be prone to trip over. If you don't want to fall, don't walk where it's slippery. Make sense? Stay as far away from the cliff as possible so progressive sanctification is not a matter of how much, how, how much can I do before it becomes sin, but how far away can I, can I stay from it. Make no preparation for the possibility of sin so that you can slay it before it even breeds. That's the mentality James gives us in James chapter 1. Before that lust conceives, to put it in very practical terms, if you struggle with gluttony, stop loading up on junk food at the, at the grocery store. You know, if you, if you uh, have that weakness towards the potato chips, stop buying them so that when you got the munchies at home, you're not prone to giving in and eating a whole bag yourself. If you're tempted with sexual desires, refrain from filling your mind with images that feed your lust. Cut off the internet. Besides saving 30 or 32 bucks a month, you're going to save yourself a world of tempting uh, uh, opportunities. I remember this uh, guy I was counseling in regards to sexual sin. Uh, we were still out in Southern California, and uh, he, that's out in billboard land. And so, we would, we'd, uh, the way we'd work out this principle is uh, the Thomas Guide, which is a street map for uh, all of uh, Los Angeles. We, we plotted him home, a, a new way, way home from work that uh, steered clear of the girly shops and the billboards that were very provocative. It is that mentality, making no provision for the flesh to fulfill its unrighteous desires. So abstain from fleshly lusts. Number two, make no provision for the flesh. Notice the next slide. Number three, fix your heart on Christ. 1 John 3, 2, 2 and 3. Somebody want to read that for us? 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Last night for uh, the daily scripture reading, we were introduced to two other kings of Israel, were we not? A wicked king and a righteous king. I was so glad that we were introduced to uh, Ahaz first before uh, Hezekiah so you could end your scripture reading on a, on a positive note. And uh, um, What was an obligation when a, when a righteous king would ascend the throne, they'd They'd put down the high places, the Asherah. Because as people would go to their temples of false worship and worship false God, you, you gaze upon this, you, 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 you indulge in idolatry. You become 
like the object of your worship. We become like the object of your worship. If even the heathen become like the lifeless gods that they worship, how much more like Christ will Christians become since we've got the Holy Spirit working in us to accomplish that same very goal to become more like Jesus as we study through His life in the Gospels and we see Him as the absolute fulfillment of the law and our own righteousness, the one who perfectly kept the law on our behalf, so that as we fix our hearts on Christ, seeking first the things above, not things below, we discover our worship has that effect of conforming us into His image. I would suggest a fourth. You want to kill sin in your life, the remaining iniquity? Meditate on God's Word. Meditate on God's Word. There's so many scriptures we could have given here for reference. Psalm 119.11. Your Word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. The more of God's Word that's taken into our lives, we mem- you, you memorize Scripture, you meditate on it, you ponder it so that it can change your thought process. And the more Scripture intake we get in our lives, it's kind of like, anybody ever have a rain barrel where it collects all the, uh, all the rain? You can use it to water your flowers and whatnot. And the more that that fresh water comes in, it causes the... Uh, that stagnant water to dissipate. That's the same principle working as we meditate on God's Word to get rid of the pollution in our lives. You, you have a particular sin you're trying to master and gain victory over. How have you solicited the, uh, the sword of the Spirit in the battle as you memorize and meditate on Scripture? Start now. You know, Joshua 1.8, you want to have success in the battle against sin? Familiarize yourself with the Word of God. Meditate on it day and night. Do as the psalmist, delight in the law of the Lord. Let it be a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. You know, if there's particular sin issues you're, you're dealing with, uh, let's sit down and talk and we'll, we'll handpick some verses, some of your trigger verses, so that as you are uh, in, engaged in the battle and in the temptation spot, you can bring God's Word to bear. You notice when, though it's not the entire point of the passage, when Jesus was led off into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted, how did He overcome? By the Word of God. So meditate on God's Word. And as it begins to penetrate your heart and your mind, it will confront and attack your sin. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy Word is truth. The truth of God's Word is the medium that the Spirit of God gives to wage war. God's only given us two things in the arsenal to slay sin. His Spirit and His Word. That's it. To make full use of them. Load your mind with Scripture. Fill your heart with Scripture. Ponder it carefully in context. Let it direct your walk. As Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell within you. 
you'll discover that the sword of the Spirit is the most effective weapon for hacking the flesh to pieces. What would this look like? Suppose you uh, are, are constantly barraged with the sin of anxiety and worry. You're going to go and you're going you're gonna to study Matthew 6 and you're going to study Philippians 4 and you're going to take some of those verses from the Lord Jesus and from the Apostle Paul and they're going to commit them to memory. You're going to use those so that when you start to dwell upon the future events that you're worrisome about, you import God's promises and His truth to overcome the experience and the situation of life. So as we walk through a biblical paradigm of how can we slay sin in life, abstain from fleshly lusts, make no provision for the flesh, fix your heart on Christ, meditate on God's Word. Fifthly, the next slide, pray without ceasing. That's why I use that example of anxiety and worry uh, in that previous point. Paul, by divine compulsion... Inspired by the Spirit of God, He delivers us an imperative. Be anxious for how much can we get away worrying about and frittering about? Nothing. Nothing means no thing. Be anxious for nothing, and the counterpart in the verse, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be named. You know, here you are frittering about the events that you can do nothing about. You're to commit him to God who works everything together for good to them that love him, for his glory, for our good. So we ought to pray without ceasing. You know, I use Jesus as the example on, on uh, confronting the temptation with Scripture. How about we use him for our example as well in uh, praying without ceasing? Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He knew he had to drink the cup down to its dregs. And so he instructs his disciples to do what he himself practiced. He says in Luke twenty two forty, 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is what he taught us to pray. Jesus in the model prayer teaches us that an element of our prayer, our intercession before God, our request, ought to be, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Look at prayer as a preemptive strike against fleshliness. Watch and pray that you not enter into that temptation. So Jesus in the garden instructs His disciples to do as He did. Watch and pray. And he found them sleeping and rebuked them for their prayerlessness. He says, keep watching and praying. Constant, perpetually, punctuated throughout the night that you not enter into temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So use, it as a, use prayer as a preemptive strike. By drawing the believer near to the Lord and focusing his thoughts on him, prayer both steals against fleshly temptations and weakens the temptations when they come. It doesn't make your path easy, but it makes it easier so that you might be able to bear it. So use prayer as this 
preemptive strike. Uh, identify the circumstance that leads you into sin. And pray specifically for strength to face those situations. Pray that God would give you a holy hatred for sin. Admit to Him. Confess to Him you lack that kind of hatred you ought to have. That you would hate it as God hates it. You know, this, the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 19 is a, is a great example for us here. In Psalm 19, verses 12 and following, who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As he anchored himself into the rock of his salvation, there he found sustenance and strength to wage the, ba the battle. Yes, we must include confession and repentance if it's to be effective in killing sin. Sixth and finally, look with me as, as we conclude our, our uh, few weeks study on uh, progressive sanctification. Let's look where we began in Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5, Paul again weighs in on putting to death remaining sin. He says in Galatians 5.23, uh, 5.24, excuse me, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You, you see that walk repeated, I think, it, if I remember correctly, three times throughout the text. Back in verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Skip down to verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So, exercise self-control to put it in uh, language Paul used with the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 he talks about discipline in ourselves for the heavenly prize a watchful self-discipline that refuses to pander to the appetites of the body at the soul's expense you're going back to uh, that thought that we, uh, we had, uh, the, 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 we started with Bob Newhart principle, right? Oh, no, the, the Peter principle. Stop it. Exercise self-control. Not pandering to the appetites of the body at the soul's expense. Jesus said, be on guard. That your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that the day of the Lord will not come on you suddenly like a trap. We, we just got done finishing uh, our study of Second Peter. Peter says, in, in light of that day, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, we're to, we're to purify ourselves as He is. You know, we're not supposed to just uh, live without restraint with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. 
but discipline ourselves. Exercise self-control. And seventh, filled by the Spirit. Remember our, as we were looking here in Galatians 5, the, the works of the flesh, the fruit that the Spirit produces? Be filled with Him. That is, be controlled by Him, utterly yielded. We started saying at the beginning of our, our class this morning that progressive sanctification is not something that is passive, but something that is, that is active, the Spirit working in us. If I could uh, quote John Owen again, he said, He doth not so work our mortification in us as not to keep it still an act of our obedience. So, so what, he's, what he's putting before our minds is this divine co-op that the Spirit and us working together towards our sanctification. And he says, the Holy Ghost works in us and upon us as we are fit to be wrought in and upon. That is, so as to preserve our own liberty and free obedience. He works upon our understandings on our wills, our consciences and affections, agreeably to their own natures. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us, so that His assistance is an encouragement as to the facilitating of the work and no occasion of neglect as to the work itself. So yes, there is still that degree of, of how do we and the Spirit work together towards our holiness. There, there is a degree of... of uh, uh, of mystery, but there are clear indications in Scripture that it's not without our activity, not without our discipline in ourselves unto godliness, with not our submitting to the Spirit, that we are controlled by Him, utterly yielding. So that brings us back to where we, where we started in Romans this morning. We read uh, Romans 8, 12, and 13. To kill, to mortify sin by the Spirit. By the Spirit. You know, we can't abandon the hard work and the personal responsibility of the fight. And yet the Spirit-filled life is, is activity with the Spirit in accordance with His Word, that which is vigorous, a working endeavor in which we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, a, a sobriety, as Peter had said, not, uh, not in dissipation. You know, we're serious that this is uh, the real deal. This is about victory or defeat. This is about honoring Christ or honoring self. And for the Christian, we've made it our aim to be well-pleasing to Him. So it's the Spirit who accomplishes the work through us as we yield to Him. We're not passive agents. When we obey, we discover it's actually God working in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. As we apply ourselves, as we work out our salvation... Do we get to take credit? No. Our boasting is, thank you, Lord, for the work that you've accomplished. He molds our wills to obey and then gives the energy to work according to whatever pleases him. That is the Spirit-filled life. There are so many other duties that we don't have time to look into. We've looked at sanctification from so many angles. Many more duties we could find in Scripture, like 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourself with humility. Have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, 5. Put away spiteful feelings towards others, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. We said that it's a battle, right? So we could import Paul's uh, discussion in Ephesians 6, putting on the armor of God, 
Colossians 3, 8 and 9, laying aside sinful attitudes. Oh, and, and also add in the graces of spiritual growth to your life, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 that we'd already studied. Follow the know, reckon, yield, obey, serve pattern of Romans 6. But this basic pattern that we end with, being filled with the Spirit, encompasses all of these. As we studied it in Galatians, be filled with the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Were there any remaining questions or clarifications as we've been looking at this? For a month or so, Jesse. Yep. Mm-hmm. Book or booklet? Okay. Just a small little book. Yep. What's the name of uh, Scott's book again? Killing Sin in Your Life? Killing Sin Habits. Winning the Battle in Our Mind. Yep. Maybe we'll get a co- we might get a, co- a couple of copies uh, for the book nook to help folks out. Well, would you, would you pray with me? Father... I know that uh, we have in adult Sunday school primarily believers. This is the desire of our hearts that we would be well-pleasing to you, that you would continue the work that you began at the moment of our salvation, that to be positionally sanctified, to be justified, to be made righteous, to be clothed with your son's own perfections is your enablement for every command you've given us. Lord, there is the ought to the Christian life. There is obligation because it's an overflow of hearts that have been captured by your grace that you have lavished upon us in your Son through your glorious gospel of grace. So Lord, help us to put together our workout regime of what it looks like in our individual lives to discipline ourselves unto godliness. Give us victory in the battle as we would be faithful to utilize your spirit and your word to engage ourselves with these resources that we would be made more like Christ and that you would be honored and glorified. We thank you, Lord, for this divine co-op that you've given of working out our salvation and yet knowing that you work in us to will and to do of your own good pleasure. Help us to be a stimulus in each other as we fellowship and as we serve together in this church, a stimulus towards holiness, to spur each other on to love and good deeds as iron sharpens iron to sharpen each other in the battle. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory for what you accomplish in transforming us from one level of glory to another. For the glory of our great King, we thank you. Amen.